Welcome to The Grow Show with me as your host, Joe Camerato. I am an entrepreneur who created my company, National Business Capital, from literally $0 out of my spare bedroom to over $2 billion in business loans secured for entrepreneurs nationwide. Since 2007, I have seen just about every type of business. I provide money and help entrepreneurs access capital to scale fast, but I also know that it's possible for you, as you scale, to replace yourself to build systems, processes, and great teams of people that can live on without you so you can actually enjoy your life and your company can still grow. I will not only tell you the peaks and valleys of my story, but I will also bring on world-class entrepreneurs to tell their stories and share their lessons on their growth journeys. Welcome to The Grow Show. All right, all right. Welcome to The Grow Show with me as your host, Joe Cambrato. Got a great guest on today, Bill Faith. Um, who is a true testament to growing, has had 29 startups, um, I think 21 successful exits, if that's correct. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill. You're, you are correct. I guess if you, it depends on how you define success, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and has built a massive um, residential uh, real estate portfolio and short-term rentals. Um, and uh, his main company right now is Build Str Wealth or Build Short Term uh, Rental, um, you know, wealth, and which is you know it's that's been an interesting market. So I, I want to talk about that. I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think there's a lot of challenges. So excited to talk about that today. But you know, Bill's been an, uh, an in influential figure, a trailblazer, and expert in navigating the dynamic landscape of commercial and residential investing. Um, and uh, and Bill has had three um, thirty million dollar plus companies, so really excited to have you on the show today, uh, Bill. And really want to hear you know what you're up to. Um, you've got some really cool stuff coming up. A pretty awesome conference. I think you said one of your biggest. So I want to hear about all this great stuff. But uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'm up to about six foot six and three quarters and two hundred and seventy pounds, just FYI. So I barely fit inside the screen. <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you make it. You're definitely. Well, it's called the Grow Show. I guess you're truly growing. So <laughs> I'm trying to slim down. I'm trying to slim down. You know, it's an interesting thing. As you probably see, a lot of us entrepreneurs, we get so just hardcore into our business and our scale and our growth. A lot of us just let our bodies go, and we don't focus enough on health. So I've been uh, trying to to reignite that type of of growth in my life and actually grow smaller as opposed to bigger in the last three or four months. <laughs> yes, just grow bigger financially, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's a good. Uh, that's actually a good strategy. And I mean, you've got a really wild background. I mean, you know, going back to when you were in high school, you also were a professional golfer and played with Tiger Woods, which is really cool. So I want to hear about that. You've had all these different companies, so. You know, I guess kind of take me back to high school, your growth journey, um, you know, to where you are today. I really would love to hear that story. And I'm sure my viewers would as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I was playing junior golf. I was an athlete growing up. My whole family were, were athletes, my grandparents, my mother. Um, my mom was a teacher, single mother. My parents divorced when I was five, only child, right? So I got all the love. And my mom worked her ass off being a teacher, probably never made more than 30 grand. We weren't poor. I never missed a meal by any means, but you know what? It was tough. And yeah. I was playing in what's called a junior am, like a pro am in a golf tournament in Los Angeles. Met this guy named Jay Jacoby, played with him for four hours. He owned American Pacific T-shirt company. This is in 1989. 
And basically he gave me like five shirts and they were all back in the day, like these crazy, you know, design type of shirts. And they were all NBA players. And I grew up in Southern California. I'm a Laker fan. I'm a Magic Johnson guy. And I got like Carl Malone, Charles Barkley, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird. And I took him home and my mom's like, that's so cool. I said, yeah, but I didn't get Magic. I'm not going to wear a Bird shirt. Nobody cared about Jordan, you know, back then. We were Lakers guys. So I sold the shirts. About two months later, that was like at the beginning of the summer, two months later, ran into Jay at another golf tournament. He was a big junior golf supporter, which was kind of cool. And he's like, hey, how are the shirts? My mom kind of looked at me, and I knew I had to tell the truth. I said, Jay, I sold the shirts. He's like, you sold the shirts? He's like, what would you get for them? I said, like 15 bucks. He's like, man, you should be charging 25 He's like, why'd you really sell them? I said, because I'm a Lakers guy. He's like, I think I got some like James Worthy or, or Magic in the back of my car. We'll go over there later. So he started talking, if you got 15 bucks, do you think you could get 20 or 25? Long story short, we drove 40 minutes to West LA. He took us to his warehouse. He gave my, my mom had a four, 19, I think it was an 86 Ford Tempo. My golf clubs are in the trunk. We put like 50 shirts in the back in these three boxes, like 200 shirts in the back seat. Drove back to Bakersfield, California, and I started selling them. I sold out of them in two football games. At, I went to West Bakersfield High School, and then we went to Bakersfield High School. And I, Michael Knight and Kevin Thomas, I had two of my friends help me. Long story short, by the end of that season, we were on about a hundred to hundred and thirty thousand dollar run rate. I, th- you know, there was like six or seven games. I was selling almost twenty thousand dollars worth of shirts in wow, a week. But we started selling them, and we ended up with like six or seven guys that were selling them for me at different high schools around the country. And that's kind of was my first entrepreneurial journey. Um, my mom sat me down at our dining room table and started teaching me about finances. She's like, Hey, if you're selling them for 25, we need, we got to pay Mr. Jacoby like $5 a shirt. It costs us X to drive down there for gas. And, you know, you always want to stop at in and out burger, all that type of stuff. And she just taught me, you know, really what a PL was, which she didn't use those terms, but she had gone from being a teacher to making her first and only investment in her life as an entrepreneur and bought a preschool. And so I got to learn that firsthand. And I think that's really, honestly, at that table is where I learned that to be a successful entrepreneur, we need to have an intimate relationship with our financials. And I've kind of used that as my groundwork uh, as I've scaled and, and grown my companies as an adult. Wow, that's awesome. How old How old were you when that happened? 17. When, no, I was actually yeah. 16 because I didn't start driving until I was 17. So 16 years old, that would have been, yeah, uh, 1989. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, if someone would have even gave you that opportunity at 12, 13 or 14, you probably would have, you know, made it happen. Is that, is that fair to say? I don't know at that young. So I got into golf through the big brother program because I didn't have a father and my big oh, brother, I don't know that I had as much independence or drive until I started playing golf. Cause it's different when I was playing soccer and basketball and baseball as a team sport. But once I had to practice on my own, once I didn't have a coach, you know, to push me and give me a, a system or a program to follow. I think that's where I started to gain that self-drive and that self-independence. And then also being what, you know, this is this will date me. I'm 50. Being a latchkey kid, my mom worked two jobs. It's where I had to feed myself, do my own homework. I think as I grew older, I don't know if I would have been like one of those 12-year-old kids that, you know, gets a million-dollar valuation on Shark Tank these days. I think I had to mature <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit uh, to get into that. And I think golf golf shaped my entire life to, I think, I don't think I would have been successful if 
I wouldn't have had Chris, the big brother, introduce me to golf because it just to excel at an individual sport like that with no coaching. There's just this different level, I think, that you have to grow mentally. And then the other thing about golf is it's kind of like being an entrepreneur. You know, you go play basketball and that's a like 90 minutes. You play a football game is like two hours roughly. But golf takes five to seven hours from the sometimes eight or nine hours from the time you start. You, you wake up to get to practice session, stretch, play four and a half to six hours. Then you go practice again. And what I learned is, is I can't always be on. So the focus, there was a great sports psychologist named Dr. Bob Rotella that taught me how to really focus in 20 second increments. And that's something that I've carried forward and try to apply now. I mean, it's really easy for us to get burned out if we're just yeah. always on, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, so I would have to tell you, probably not. I wasn't ready at that young age. If, it, if 16 is kind of when I started becoming really, really independent. And I think I needed that uh, to be able to, to be successful. That's really cool. I, I mean, the reason why I ask is I just feel like it's just, you, you know, you can never start too young with your kids. And, and you know, I've been thinking about that with my you know own kids. Um, really cool to hear like the golf analogies. And it's funny because in, in golf, like you do need those 20 seconds of focus to get regrounded. And, and I feel like half of it is mindset and, and, and focus in golf versus, you know, um, you know, some of the other skills that you need. Those 20 seconds, I'll never forget from Dr. Bob Rotella. He wrote a, a book called Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. You know, we all strive to be perfection, but really in golf, there's two things that have stuck with me for the last, you know, 40 years of my life. Number one is we're only as good as our bad shots. So if we can minimize our bad shots instead of focusing yeah. on hitting something perfect, but also where most people, and specifically golfers, you're standing on a tee box and there's water to the right and fairway to the left, 99.9% .9 of people are focusing on the water and not hitting it there versus the other 0.01% are focusing on the bunker, the cart path, the tree right in the middle of the fairway. And we're positively visualizing swinging and executing that perfect shot going to where we want it to go as opposed to where we don't want it to go. Correct. And yeah. I mean, that's yeah. kind of like when we learn how to ride a bike, we all run into the fucking mailbox or the back of the car. Yeah. Right? Cause that's what you're focusing on. It's same 100%. thing with avoiding a car crash. You're focused on not hitting the car. You hit the car instead of focusing on where the car needs to go. And you, you mentioned yeah. if, if we could learn and teach our children that mindset early, um, I think that they can end up become, becoming more successful through high school, college, and into their professional career. And um, that, back to that dining table, Joe, one of the big – I think about that every day. I have a 14- and 17-year-old daughter, freshman and senior in high school, and the financial literacy that they have, because I, my mom taught me to teach them, they are so far ahead of their friends in that financial literacy, the, the investing part. And I'm not talking like Bitcoin and stocks, about investing into themselves and how to become self-sufficient and make money when they get out of college. Yeah, yeah it's, it's awesome. I, I, again, I think, I think more of that needs to be taught. I think it's so important. And, and you know, I look at my job as a parent to it's to make my kids be independent, you know? So I just feel like you can't start young enough with independence. A lot of helicopter parents today, you know, they do the exact opposite of that. Right. And, and their kids, I think are lost and, and they don't have any motivation or drive and they're afraid to make any mistakes because um, their parents never let them, you know? So it's really, it's really interesting. We've been focused on a lot of this stuff in my household and I think it makes a big difference. I love it. I think if you can equip your kids with some of those skills and like Dana White, I saw, it was like a TikTok clip of an interview and he said, you know what? I just hope my kids have, if they just have 10% of the savageness, 
you know, yeah. that, that my generation has, they're going to walk all over every, all the, everybody in their own it's, generation. It's so true. You actually don't need that much of craziness these days. It's, it's pretty interesting, actually. Agreed. Nice. Well, it's pretty cool that you were in the Big Brother program. Actually, so was I. And it was, it had a big, uh, you know, impact, you know, in my life. Do you still speak with your uh, with your big brother? Is he still around? Or um, I had three. I st I'm still in communication with two, and I mean that's kind of been my my foundation, if you will. I mean, <laughs> excuse me. I uh, I'm a bit I'm a big supporter. It's kind of funny when I moved to Nashville. Um, the first guy I met here, and most of your listeners probably won't know, but his name is Marty Rowe. He's the lead singer of a band called Diamond Rio, which was the second biggest country band in the '90s behind Alabama. And he was a huge golfer. So we started playing golf all the time. And his charity for their band back then was the Big Brothers and Big Sisters uh, programs, which was kind of cool. So I got to do a lot of stuff. And I've never been a Big Brother myself because I don't think I would be a very good one. And that's what happened with my first one. You know, he just wasn't available enough. And I travel way too much. And I'm sure you have a travel schedule. So I'm all in on my family. But someday... I've committed financially and done speaking and stuff like that. But someday I, I, that's kind of one of my life goals. I want to become a big brother. Uh, to somebody because it, it totally, totally shaped my life. I don't think I would have had the, what, you know, Steve branded for me. I build super properties, a super portfolio and a super life. I wouldn't have a super life. Um, if it wasn't for Chris, that big brother. Yeah, that's awesome. Really, really good stuff. Nice. So, you know, you, you, went into a bunch of, you know, different, um, you know, companies, you know, um, you know, what, what, what's been some of your biggest challenges with, with growth, you know, over the years, what do you think the hurdles have been to get to where you are? I think the people that are doing it today that are younger than myself, that might be in their twenties or thirties, they have no idea. We were kind of talking about this in the pre-show. I mean, I was, I was drop shipping and built a, a, a basically an e-commerce distribution drop shipping company in 1992. The technology was so challenging back then. Um, I spent almost 200 G's building out uh, an e-commerce website in 1992 that I could do for you know 100 bucks and you know 45 minutes on Shopify today. So I think that was one of the biggest components. The the other thing, one of the reasons I've only had a couple of big companies is I just don't like big companies and lots of employees. So I've done a lot of smaller companies and I've exited in the five, 10, $15 million range as opposed to growing these massive companies. And I learned that kind of early on with my very first company. And my last one that I grew was a company called Glow Golf. It's glow in the dark miniature golf courses and shopping malls um, around the country. Oh, wow. And we, uh, we kind of started that industry in 2003 and man, we, we were doing about 33 million, uh, 30 to 35 million for the last four to five years consistently going into COVID. And when we had to have a team of eight security guys full time at headquarters in Wichita, just watching cameras because we were about a 50 percent cash business and you just have all these teenagers that are stealing from you. You just get you one. You don't want to prosecute them and ruin their lives, but you also kind of get this jaded perspective of, you know, Hey, we got to write off three to $4 million in theft on an annual basis. It kind of sucks. So wow. after really during that period in 2015 is when I kind of started to re-architect my life, um, to try to become employee less, if you will. And I had a, about a $12 million marketing agency in Nashville at that time with, uh, 28 employees and literally restructured the marketing side, the client facing side to get into online education. And now I have two employees 
and the scale and the profitability is just dramatically higher. Um, and I have a focus today, instead of chasing businesses and starting businesses and putting me and my family second, um, and really the business first, now it's family first. And it's about how can I maximize profit with the least amount of time? So I've been probably since about 2013, 14, I was searching for those types of businesses uh, to not be brick and mortar, not be traditional, not have offices and warehouses and uh, a ton of employees, because I just, that's not something that I like to do. And I'm sure you've heard the term genius zone. I try to stay in my genius zone. And one of my things is just not managing hundreds of people by any means. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely not easy. I completely, uh, completely get it. I've actually never heard the genius zone before, but I like it. <laughs> so, I mean, if you think about the genius zone, and I don't know who came up with this term, I'm not going to take credit for it, but one of the things that I like about it is that you focus on what you are really good at, right? And you think about like a Venn diagram. If you take sales, marketing, operations, there's going to be this overlap in the middle and that overlap in the middle, the Venn diagram, that's your genius zone. That's the only thing we should be doing as the CEOs if we want to scale, right? So I learned very early on that if I'm going to build a company and I want to scale quickly, if I really want to grow it, I got to be good at two things, sales and marketing, right? So I'm not the product development guy. I'm not the operations guy. I'm definitely not the HR guy. Um, I'm the guy that's really focusing on the market, the go-to-market strategy, the sales strategy, the customer retention strategy, and then the rebuy strategy. And those are kind of my four things that I would really hone in um, inside of my genius zone. And I, and it, it took me years to learn that. But once I kind of nailed that and I said, you know what? Hey, Timmy can handle ops better than I can. You know, and Chris is going to handle production because I just get in the way when I'm doing that stuff. And then once again, I got to get from those outside circles and get right back into the middle in that genius zone. That's when I really started scaling quickly. And that's when my that those numbers went from company seven to company eight to company nine. So I was able to grow quickly, scale, exit, and then reinvest. And I kind of take that same strategy into um, what I'm doing with my real estate portfolio. I didn't plan this, but I'm going to show you a book give you a shout out. I'm sure many of your people have heard of Mike Michalowicz, right? He wrote Profit First in the Pumpkin Plan. So it's interesting. He was a keynote speaker for me at my big SDR Wealth Conference last year. And we got to hang out afterwards and kind of became friends. And I'd never read the pumpkin plan. And really what it is in a nutshell is about trimming these small pumpkins around the bigger pumpkin, giving it room to breathe, get more nutrients out of the soil, you know, give it space to be able to grow. But it all starts with buying the highest end pumpkin seeds where the average pumpkin that's about this big, the, the pumpkin farmer buys the cheapest seeds and throws thousands of them out into the patch. Doesn't mm. happen with the guy that's building super pumpkins, right? So I've, I've wanted to build super pumpkins. So in my businesses, when I would have three or four going on, I look at the one that has the lowest dividend. And that's the one, if I can get a valuation, kind of my cash on equity is what I look at in real estate today. It's the same thing. I trim that off create more time for me to focus on my genius zone to scale the companies that are going to be more scalable and more profitable. So I've always been living that for about 15 to 20 years. And I didn't know that Mike wrote a book about that exact same thing. Um, wow. And well, after he had spoken about profit first at my conference, I read the book and it's just, it's, it's incredible. So that's kind of how I've gone through all of those startups and why I don't stay in a lot of them for more than three to five years, roughly because I want to build them to be sustainable, get myself out of the startup role and into the CEO role. So now they're acquirable. If that yeah. Makes sense. 
Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. It's exciting, and you know, too. And if you're not down with you know having a ton of people, you know, dealing with that, I mean, it it, it makes uh, you know perfect sense. You could fast forward, you know, years of earnings and uh, and then move into the next thing. I, I completely uh, completely get it. I, I think uh, when when I grow up, my goal is to you know help to invest in companies and help others grow. And, and that's and a nice way of saying, hey, Bill, when I'm as old as you. <laughs> it's only another only another few more years <laughs> uh so so that's cool are you still um doing that with companies now or really is it just mainly now uh the real estate you know investing and the um the, the education and, and, and conferences so four of those companies that i that i exited from um instead of taking one lump dollar sum you and i talked about one of them uh, before the show, um, I've, cr- I've turned into annuities. And one of the very first ones, which was Bell Aqua bikinis, I was importing and drop shipping Brazilian swimwear, sarongs, bikinis, that type of stuff. I was acquired by Venus Swimwear. Um, and so thank God for my CPA, who was my best friend and my best man at my wedding and said, hey, turn down the 2.8 million. Let's take like, I think it was 180 or 190,000 cash in a 7% um, you know, royalty in perpetuity to steal a, a term from Mr. Wonderful in the shark tank and had no idea who he was at that time. And thank God I did because that set up the consistent cash flow for me, you know, in the future. And that was in that exit was in 1994. So, you know, we're talking 29 years later, I'm still getting mailbox money, truly passive. You know, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about short-term rentals here in a second. A lot of people think short-term rentals are passive and they're close, but you still have to put work and effort uh, into a lot of the passive income. I mean, unless it's stocks, unless it's an annuity. So once I went through that and as I got older, that's really what I was trying to build towards. And a lot of times it was people that I would have inside my infrastructure, employees. Like right now, I've got Chris, who's my COO, and he's been with me for six and a half years. And he's the guy that will take everything over when I sunset. Hopefully that's not for five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years. Uh, but those annuities have been a huge play for me. It's great to get the big check, but there's a lot of taxes uh, that come along with that. And that's kind of one of the reasons I pivoted real estate wise, Joe, to go from long-term into short-term. There's a thing called the short-term rental loophole uh, that provides the best tax advantage that nobody knows about in our industry. And it's called a cost segregation study on short-term rentals. So I I started making so much money that I needed to take advantage of this to where essentially I'm getting my properties for free. It's delayed gratification, right? So I buy a $500,000 property. I put a hundred grand down and let's say I buy it in the mountain and the smoky mountains as an example. Well, the land value is so low there that I'm going to get probably 70% of the $500,000 purchase price in the dwelling value. So I hire an engineer that specializes in cost segregation studies, cost 2,500 to 3,000, 3,500 bucks. And they accelerate the 27 and a half years of depreciation. So you look at your appliances, your flooring, all that's like five years, six years. Whereas a standard CPA is taking your investment and amortizing over 27 and a half. So what you're seeing on average nationwide is about a 25% investment. But when you stay away from beaches, you know, which lands very expensive in Malibu and Destin and those types of places, you can get even higher. I'm closing on a condo next week. Joe, it's 950 grand. It's in a place called Corum, Montana. It's four miles from the entrance to West Glacier National Park. 950K. Land value is 3%. Probably going to get wow. about 40, wow. 
cost egg return on that, which means I'm going to be right around $400,000 that will offset my rental income. Last year, I made $997,000 net income, not gross revenue, net income off of just my own short-term rentals. So if I do the same this year, I'm trying to be a little bit higher, probably around a million eighty. That one property that I'm putting $185,000 into, I'm going to get $400,000 in direct dollar-for-dollar tax benefit off the cost segregation study. So now that will vary based on the tax bracket that you fall into. If you fall into 18% versus me, I'm in the highest tax bracket, roughly around 44%. It's going to be quite a bit different in the actual benefit that you will get. But this is one of the secrets that I learned and why I migrated into that the STR space. I mean, one, the cash flow is great, but also you get these mega tax uh, benefits through cost segregation studies and accelerating the the depreciation. Unfortunately, last year was the last year for 100%. This year, we're at 80%. Next year, it'll be at 60. It's starting to sunset. Uh, So that's going to go away if it doesn't get repealed. Got it, got it, got it. Now, could you still take the cost segregation, um, even if you don't do the short-term rental, and still offset your future um, rental income profits? You can't do it on long-term rentals. Um, You can do it on some commercial spaces. There are some other things that you can do, but the maximum benefit is through the short-term rental. A loophole. And you don't even have to be like a real estate professional. People talk about that long term or with real estate agents. There's a whole different level of qualifications. It's called material participation that is not that challenging to do. Uh, but that you're talking about two to three times higher benefit on the cost saying with a short term rental than you would be on a, a commercial piece of real estate. Wow, that's really interesting. That's pretty amazing. And then, I mean, basically, that's going to, you know, chop your tax bill in half. Um, I. It, it's it, it it's can do more than that. So last year I acquired five properties, all between one was about five hundred thirty-five thousand. The others were between a million to one point six million. They've all cash flowed. They're all fantastic from a cash flow perspective. But I needed you know roughly a, a, over a million dollars in cost seg benefit to offset my taxes because I was going to owe close to one point six million dollars in taxes last year. So that's part of the tax deferent strategy is if I can identify one, you never want to buy a property just for tax benefit. You still are buying it as an investor for cash flow first and appreciation yeah. second. Um, and you got to underwrite it today. Joe, there's a lot of people are saying, oh, I think the interest rates are going to come down in 24 months. So it's yeah. OK if I break even today. Don't bank on the future. Underwrite it today and live by your decision today. But then if I can get that cost seg benefit, that's really I mean, outside of the Augusta rule, work the working from home, um, you know, and, you know, Section 179, there's really not a whole lot of other things that we can do to accelerate it outside of expenses. So one of the things that has become really important to me as I become a, a super high income earner is that I really understand taxes. And I think a lot of people, as they grow and scale, they're so focused on growing and scaling companies, they don't focus enough on how do we keep our money. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and it, it, it's all about how much you keep, not how much you make. That's for sure. And and do you like to focus in like the mountainous type of areas, or or where do you you know where where do you, where are most of your properties? So I started in um, Gulf Shores, Alabama, and I was actually down there yesterday getting a property for a client. And the reason I went to Gulf Shores is another gentleman I played professional golf with in South America actually, he lived and owned a massive resort and hotel in in Destin. And I'll never forget 1999 at the millennium, myself and some friends from California went to his resort. Then he sold, then he basically tore it down and built like $2 billion worth of homes and condos on his land. 
So he got into short-term rentals. He got into property management. And in 2014, fall break, we're in 30A Seaside. I'm sure you've heard of that. Uh, uh, the nicest area in the panhandle having pizza with him and his wife and my wife and my kids. And my wife's like, hey, I want a beach house. And we, we, William Wilson's his name. He's like six. He called me six pack. How much, how much cash do you have? I said, I'm willing to put in like 125K to buy something, you know, maybe six, 700,000 bucks. Where he's like, I want to see the, I want to see the water, hear it and smell it. Those are the only three things that she cared about. And <laughs> my buddy William looks at me and this is Seaside 30A, right? This was 2014. So a long time ago. And he says, dude, you need to go to the Redneck Riviera in Gulf Shores because you can't afford to buy here. If you if you have those three restrictions, because you're talking first tier, second tier. Yeah. <clears throat> we flew to Gulf Shores about a month later, saw 10 properties um, in, the, in the one day that we were there. We ended up buying the very first one that we saw. She could see the water. She could see the sand. She could hear it. We could sit on the back deck and she could smell it. We paid $629,000. Uh, we had a property manager uh, manage the company. Typically, if you don't know what you're doing, the agent works for a property management company. So whoever the agent is, they end up managing it. Um, I became super anti-property manager super quick because they're not transparent. They don't know how to price. They don't know how to market your property. They couldn't answer any questions. They just hide everything. They own the listings. And after about 90 days, I took it over. And they were gonna—they were on a run rate to do about forty-four thousand dollars in revenue. I did a hundred k in the first twelve months, so I more than two xed it, um, and then leveraged that cash—the net profit I was making. It took me two years to buy my second one, and then now on my second one, I'm doing a similar revenue. So now I've doubled that. So then I take that cash and I buy the third one. So it took me a while to get going. I didn't buy my third one until almost the end of year number three. But now I've got three properties that on average were producing about just under $90,000 net income um, on each property, right? So we're talking literally over 200 grand in net income coming in. So I'm reinvesting and then I'm reinvesting. And that's how I was able to grow quickly once I got to year number three, but I was very slow, kind of the tortoise in year number one, two. I wanted to learn what I needed to learn. And I started after those first three years, I started diversifying. So I'm on the beach. I have lake properties as well. Um, I'm in the mountains of North Carolina. I own in Montana. I'm in Arizona. I'm in Colorado. So one of the first diversifications I did is I went from beach to Western North Carolina uh, instead of the Smokies. So there's a trend here, right? So I'm in Whitefish, Montana. I'm not in Big Sky, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. In Gulf Shores, I'm not in 30A. I'm not in Destin. I'm in Western North Carolina, a place called Banner Elk and Beach Mountain as opposed to being in the Smokies. So I go away from those primary markets. If people are talking about those pla these places on social media, then I'm going to the tertiary market. Why? Because the entry, the cost of entry is lower. Um, there's still plenty of demand, so I can ge generate the same amount of revenue. Labor cost is lower. Cleaning costs are lower. Taxes are lower. All that type of stuff. So I get increased profit margins, so that way I can scale. And the other thing is the competition is easier, right? It's like, Going to, you know, the Poconos as an example. Poconos versus like Saratoga Springs. Saratoga Springs is going to be a little bit more high-end, going to be more competition. Poconos, older, a little bit more run down. If I buy a property, I ARV it, I fix it up, I rehab it, I get a much bigger competitive advantage. And then I was diversifying cash flow. So Beach, right now, we just passed Labor Day. 
basically Memorial Day, Memorial Day to Labor Day is prime season, yeah. right? My number one property is at the beach. Yeah. I yeah. built a new construction house, 900 grand. First year did $357,000 in gross revenue, netted over 200K on it, right? Wow. That property, I'm getting $2,400 a night during the summer. In January, it's like $499 a night. Yeah, so what exactly. happens is, yeah. is my cash flow shrinks because it's so seasonal. That's why I started investing in places like Montana and places like North Carolina. So I'm diversifying my cash flow geographically based on where I'm investing. Just like you want to have a well-rounded portfolio in your uh, stock investments and mutual funds. Yeah. God forbid, too. There's an act of God, you know, hurricane, whatever, with all the craziness going on, fire, whatever, have it. You're, you're, in, you're spread out all around the country in all these different areas. It makes sense. And is this, are you full time into this? Like how, like, I mean, how do you manage the, the clean, like everything? Do you still, do you use property management companies now or, or, or are you managing it yourself and just managing? You cannot make any money using a property management company. So you have to yeah. self-host, right? So yeah. that's really what I do is I teach people how to build long-term wealth and the first thing about, in real estate. And the first thing about this is that you're hosting. So you got to have the right technology, the right automations. I mean, I own, and, and my goal is to own the least amount of properties to hit my financial goals, right? I'm not the guy that's trying to go to 50 or 100 units by any means. I mean, I, I netted a million dollars, $997,000 in 22, owning 13 properties. I yeah. own 11 today. That's the pumpkin plan. So I sell my underperforming ones and I reinvest to build bigger super properties that yield higher cash flow. Um, I'm closing on one next week in Montana. Um, that It's a two bedroom condo, but it will be a super property because it's going to be super high yield because it's creating a luxury space where it doesn't exist almost at the entrance of a national park. Um, so I spend probably five to seven hours on the portfolio that I own. I also co-host. I co-host 13 properties. And what that means is I manage them for other other investors. And so I do the same thing for them that I do for my own properties. I spend about the same amount of time, another five, seven, 10 hours a week. So that's probably, you know, 15 to 18 hours a week that I'm spending on both of those. I made 400, 420 last year net off of my co-hosting business. And that's a great way for those of you that don't have the capital. And if you're listening and you want to get into something and grow and scale, if you have the ability to market like I do, then think about becoming a co-host and then you build up your nest egg. Then you can go and you can invest. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yep, you got to get the so, cash from somewhere. Yeah. So I started co-hosting one to develop a business that I could hand off to Chris, my COO, because like with build short term on wealth, it's me. Right. And if I decide to retire, if I die, that business will probably dissipate. He's not the brand of it. I am just like you're the brand of your business. So I wanted to create something for him and that, that I could also create that annuity for myself. To where he has a percentage now and then hopefully when as I start to sunset and I have this life plan to where when my youngest daughter graduates high school as a freshman, then my wife and I will do what our definition of retirement is. Um, and then that's when I'll start to transition that stuff over to him. So very intentional when I start businesses, I'm always thinking about how I'm going to exit and that impacts the, the type and the structure of business and how I'm going to create it. Because I... I'm really big into the personalization of marketing, personalization and sales, personalization even in the brand. And I kind of go back to Apple. I don't know about you, but when I think of Apple and if I think of a human being, 
even though he's been dead for quite a while, I'm always going to think about Steve Jobs. That's the brand, right? When I think about Microsoft, I, I can't even tell you who the CEO of Microsoft is today. I don't know who the <laughs> CEO of Alphabet or Google or whatever the hell it's called today. But I can tell you Bill Gates was the founder. I didn't even know who Steve Ballmer was until he founded the Clip or bought the Clippers. Yeah. Right. So you think about those personal brands for me are really important. My co-hosting business is a little bit different. That's branded under the co-hosting business because that I knew when I started it that I would have an exit in probably five to six years. And I didn't want it to become all about me and the personal brand. Yeah, makes complete sense. I think it's important to think about that before you're starting a company, because if you're going to build it around you, it might be even that much harder to exit, um, including just the brand. Right. And never mind just doing it all. But but if it's all about you and and, and you're what everyone knows, that, that could be a big challenge down the road. So absolutely to think about really good stuff. So I, I, I really appreciate everything you've said. I've, I've spoken to other people that do short term rentals, and I feel like you really broke it down and also talked about some you know tax benefits that I've never heard anyone else speak about. So really cool stuff, Bill. It's been awesome. Can I, can I, do, can I take two minutes? Because every single person can take advantage of what I'm going to share with you right now. Sure. Everybody. Let's do it. OK. If you own a home. Like you're in you're in Long Island, right? Yeah. So you think yep. about summertime, specifically the farther out you get, you know, towards the end of the island, Mamaroneck, whatever, heading out farther east, the the price goes up for Airbnb. So do me a favor, wherever you live, the listeners that are out there, and you own your own home, just look on Airbnb and or Google when you have if you have Taylor Swift that came to your town, you know that's going to be your highest value weekend. Right. So I live 20 minutes south of Nashville. This is called the Augusta rule. Literally Google the Augusta rule. You can legally rent out your house, your primary residence for up to 15 days at high at market rate. So you pick the highest 15 days and you rent that to your LLC. So yeah. I'm sure, you know, Joe, you have multiple LLCs like I do, multiple entities. So my entity rents for myself, right? As the owner of this home, I get that cash, the revenue, tax-free, 100%. I also, as the owner of the entity, get to write that off as an expense. So it is a double win, and every single person in America that owns their primary residence can take advantage of this. It's called the Augusta Rule. It's super simple. Just Google it, and I am just saved you guys somewhere between probably 5000 on the low end. For me, it's about $35,000 a year for my primary residence as I rent it to one of my own businesses and dollar for dollar tax savings. That's amazing. I've heard of that rule for like rentals, like if you had a second home and you're using it, but if you rent it for under 15, uh, you know, under 15 days to take advantage. But I didn't realize that. That's really awesome. I uh, really appreciate you sharing that stuff. And I'm sure uh, the viewers will, you know, as well. Really good stuff, Bill. How can people, you know, like learn more about this, find you, reach out to you and, you know, all that good stuff? Um, Bill Faith, that's F-A-E-T-H, BillFaith.com, um, BuildSTRWealth.com. And if you search for either of those, right, I'm all over. I'm TikTok, Instagram, uh, Facebook, you name it. BillFaith73 on Instagram. Every place else, it's BeFaith. Um, F-A-E-T-H. I got hacked, so I had to change it. Lost my name, unfortunately, on Instagram. But oh, I'm everywhere, and I'm accessible. And, you know, I love to help people. So if you want to get into this space, you know, just DM me on Instagram, BillFaith73. Good stuff. And uh, what's one growth tip? We always end with this, that you would, uh, what's a growth tip that you would give to entrepreneurs out there? 
I think the most important thing we kind of touched on it earlier, Joe, is stay inside your genius zone. You know, figure out what you are really good at. And that needs to be 90% of your focal point if you want to be able to grow and scale all that other shit. Let VAs do it, hire employees to do it. Focus on what you are really good at. And that's how you're going to move the needle. Well said. Good stuff. Awesome episode. Appreciate you being on the show, Bill. Thanks for the time and uh, keep growing.